From the 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories Storytelling Show This is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez Stories and conversations with immigrants, refugees, second, third generations, and allies where we explore the ideas, policies, and histories that forge national identity, community, and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and Nestor Gomez. Storyteller Michelle Carlo said to me, growing up a red-headed New Yorican felt like balancing on an ethnic seesaw. In this episode, we'll explore some of the complexities of ethnic and cultural identity experienced by the Puerto Rican diaspora community living in the mainland United States. First, here's Michelle's story as told on stage for 80 Minutes Around the World, Immigration Stories on February 16, 2019 at the Caveat in Manhattan. Hi, I'm Michelle Carlo and I'm a first-generation New Yorican, which is what we call people of Puerto Rican heritage who were born and raised in New York City. I was 10 when my gran abuela, my great-grandmother, died. And instead of feeling grief, I only felt relief. Because I was glad that I would no longer have to ride a subway and a bus and then another bus with my mom and my grandmother to go to Ward's Island to visit my gran abuela in this hospital that's always smelled like Clorox and puke. On, this, on Ward's Island was an island in name only. All the buildings looked like prisons, and even the pigeons, grass, and trees looked like they had been sent off there to be exiled also. When my grandmother, when my great-grandmother did die, everyone gathered in my abuela's apartment to mourn in Washington Heights. I remember, this, what a great apartment she had. You don't make them like this anymore. Like, um, no, seriously, the building was like built in like 1910 for rich people, but now the only immigrants were living there, right? It had crumbling moldings, French doors, six rooms, a dumb waiter that we used to ride in, actually, until like they, they, they didn't let us do it anymore. And as always, whenever there was a family gathering, the kitchen table had been moved into the living room and held enough food to feed the entire neighborhood. There was a, a pernil, a roast pork, a jamón, a ham, calderos, three of them. One with arroz con gandules, one with arroz con salchicha, and one with white rice for babies like me that didn't like uh, yellow rice. <laughs> and um, there were pots of beans. Uh, there, was, there was white beans with, with pumpkin and ham. There was uh, frijole negro, frijole, uh, the pink beans. There was, wait. The two trays of plantains, maduros, and tostones, a giant ensalada de aguacate, which is an avocado salad, alcapurias, and my favorite, salujos. You guys know what salujos are? They're these cornmeal fingers that are stuffed with queso blanco, and you fry them. They are my favorite. But for once, I wasn't hungry. And I wandered off alone into the hallway where there were always framed pictures of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. <laughs> I stood in front of these pictures, and I wondered why did every single house I'd always been to have these same three pictures? And I knew who these people were. I knew that John F. Kennedy had been the president of the United States, and he had tried to save the country, but he was killed. 
And I knew that Martin Luther King Jr. was supposed to save the black people. And of course, he was killed too. And then Jesus. Well, Jesus was supposed to have saved mankind. We all know how that story turned out. And I looked at Jesus with that long, stringy, blonde hair. He kind of looked like a hippie. And I knew what hippies were. Hippies were, were dirty, and they were on drugs. And I may have been only 10 years old, but I knew what drugs were. Drugs were what made people in your family not come home anymore and make whoever was left behind cry. So I tried to knock Jesus off the wall, but he was beyond my reach. And my grandmother came in, and she saw what I was doing, and she took my hand. She adjusted the picture of Jesus that I never touched, and she brought me into her bedroom. Oh, my God, I used to love this bedroom. She had this um, vanity with three mirrors, and the, big, and she, um, the bed had this like uh, chenille bedspread, and it was always cozy, and it kind of smelled grandma, you know, like, like, like Jergens hand lotion and Shalimar perfume and Cody face powder. None of those things exist anymore. <laughs> so I notice on the bedspread there's a photo album. My grandmother sits down with me, and she takes out a, a photograph, but that's kind of like an artifact. It's really old, and she hands it to me. And she expects, she looks at me like she's expecting me to say something. And I'm looking at it, and it was, it was colorized. Like, you know, like they used to do, like, those colorizations a long time ago? Like paint by numbers or something? And I'm looking at this picture, and I'm not sure who these people are. There's a, a young girl, an older woman, and then a still older woman. And I don't say anything. And then after a while, you know, maybe like a minute or so, my grandmother, I guess she gets tired of waiting for me to say something. So she points at the little girl that had tight braids that looked like they hurt. And she says, this is your mother. She points at the slightly older woman, and she goes, this is me. And then she points at the older woman, and she goes, and this is my mother, your great-grandmother, your grandabuela. When she said this, I snatched the photograph away. I couldn't believe it. The, the woman in this photograph bore no resemblance to the shriveled, shrunken thing I had only known for a hospital. Like someone that was not even a, 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 like a beast. She didn't even seem human to me. She was all wrinkly and her eyes were clouds and her hands were claws and her voice was scratchy. And if she grabbed onto your arm, she had this otherworldly strength and she scared the living hell out of me. But this woman, this woman's posture was as straight as the back of the chair she was sitting in. Her hands were not clawed, but long-fingered and smooth. Her skin was smooth also, and the color of a cinnamon stick. And the hair was not sparse and white, but was jet black and straight and hung down below her shoulders. Her eyes were clear, and she had the highest, sharpest cheekbones I had ever seen. She looked like a princess or a priestess. She was beautiful. And then I gave my abuela the photograph back, and I went and looked in the vanity. And what stared back at me was this halo of frizzy red curls and my freckled, yellowish, beigey, weird color skin. And I just started crying because I didn't look like anybody in that photograph. And my grandmother said, ¿Por qué tú estás llorando, Michelle? And I go, abuela... Because my Spanish was not good. Believe me, it's still not good, but it was even less good when I was 10. I was like, Por qué yo no look like the familia? 
And my grandmother gives me this look because I always spoke too fast for her to follow. And she goes, I know, mija, pero you do. Oh, tu parece que, como se dice in English, my mother, of, and meanwhile, you know, I'm frustrated because she doesn't know enough of my words, and I don't know enough of hers, and she just continues in Spanish. Ah, mother of husband, ella, ella tiene pelo corada también, and then she's talking in Spanish, and it doesn't matter, I had tuned her out because I didn't, wouldn't have believed her had I known what she was saying anyway. And then a couple of weeks later, my family went to New York City's Puerto Rican Day Parade. And I had never really remembered us going to that before. You guys know what that is, right? It's an all-day, early June celebration of all things Boricua, where the banderas, the flags wave, and the musica plays, and the gente, the people, are cordoned off along the sidewalks. Hundreds of thousands of varying shades of beige and brown and black Pride, standing cabeza to cabeza, head to head, hombro to hombro, shoulder to shoulder, nalgas to nalgas, swaying hips to swaying hips, going, huepa, boricua, eso es nuestra día, we are Puerto Rican and this is our day. Huepa. That means, I mean everybody except for me. Because I had become lost somehow. I guess I was entranced by the flags and the music and the people. And now I was wandering down crowded Fifth Avenue by myself, looking for the nice policeman that my mother always told me to look for should I ever become lost. And when I did find the nice policeman, he took me over to this band show where there were men wearing straw hats and Guayanabera shirts and women wearing tight flowered dresses and flowers in their hair and high heels. And they said, Oh, don't worry. Your parents will come. They will come and find you. Would you like a seat? Would you? Are you hungry? Would you like something to eat? Hell yeah, I wanted something. I didn't say hell yeah. I was like, yes, 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 please, because I always don't like to eat. And they bought me a hot dog, and they bought me an orange drink, and they said, please sit down. And I was like, yes, I'm tired from all this walking and wandering. So I sit down, and the first thing I see is this good humor truck. And I'm like, ooh, if I eat this fast, maybe I can get one of these pretty ladies to buy me a strawberry shortcake. So I'm about to take a bite of this hot dog, and all of a sudden the loudspeaker blares on. And this is what I hear. Well, the family who bought the little red-headed white girl to the parade, please pick her up at the street band show. Did I hear that right? I swore that's what I heard. To this day, I swear on my still red hair that this is what I heard. And I look around to see where is this poor, unfortunate child that doesn't belong here and who would bring someone here like that. I look around the band show to see who this child was and the grown-ups are all looking everywhere except at me. And then I realized I was that child. And for the first time since my gran abuela died, I started crying because I knew that I was never going to look like a, priest, a princess or a priestess or like my mom or like my grandmother or like any of the people at the parade or the people at the band show. I knew from that day forward that I didn't fit in with my family or my people. It was on that day that I knew that I was truly a fish out of agua. Thank you. Here's Michelle again in my interview with her in Brooklyn, where we talk honestly about ethnic diversity within the Latino community 
and what it means to live second generation stateside Puerto Rican. Not all Latinos look alike. There are many families where people, there's dark skinned, medium skinned, and light skinned. If your heritage is from the Caribbean, whether you're Latino or you're from the West Indies, those are islands. And on those islands, the indigenous population was slain by conquistadors and other people from Europe. And then Africans and um, Asians, mostly Chinese, were also brought in. Mm-hmm. So you have every conceivable nationality from indigenous to European to African to Asian in this mixture. So it's like you have all this DNA in a blender. You, you it up and you pour it into little cups. And this is what we have. The, the, in my mind, the lightest skinned person has African in them. And the most African Afro looking person has white. Mm-hmm. It just depends. I mean, somebody could be mixed race and look totally one or the other. And yeah. I just happen to look like a unique uh, mixture. Um, yes, there is definitely a difference between Puerto Ricans that have their lives on the island and Puerto Ricans that have made their lives on the mainland. Mm-hmm. What happened quite often was, let's say there's like six kids in the family, right? Two brothers come here, the rest stay behind. Now, while those brothers are alive, hopefully they would go back and forth and visit relatives and relatives would come back. But once that generation gets old and they die, if their kids didn't take over that tradition of keeping the connection between the island and the mainland, then that fades out. So by the time you would get to a second generation or a third generation, you would be estranged. You wouldn't even know who these people are. And I'm first generation, and I have relatives that are on the island that I don't know and don't know me. Because mm-hmm. when, once my grandparents passed, nobody, only one person, only actually one relative on each side of my family has kept ties with Puerto Rico. My parents, because they... They went to school. They grew up in like the 1940s and 50s. There was no such thing as ESL. There was no, um, you know, they, they only spoke Spanish at home because my mother came here when she was small. My my uh, father um, was born here and his family, his mother and father came here as like teenage newlyweds in like 1928, you know, and, and they were born in the 30s. And because of the discrimination that they faced, they made the decision to have my brother and me only speak English because they didn't want that stigma on us. And they named us American names. And fine, but the flip side to that coin is that you end up not being able to communicate with your family or many members, not all of them, but many members. And there's, you know, it's friction. It's friction. You know, sometimes people would say unkind things. It's like, you know, well... You know, well, it's your mother's fault or something. And it's like, you know, you're stuck in the middle and you're just trying to get by the best you can. I mean, I made myself learn it so I could at least communicate with my both my grandmothers. And my Spanish is not good. Like people say that they're bilingual. I say that I'm one and a half lingual. <laughs> but I've come to the point where I'm proud to speak whatever Spanish I can speak. 
like the American that I am because I'm American. And okay, so here's the other disconnect too. It's like the time that I went to Puerto Rico, I, I wasn't like playing myself. I was, you know, if I would say I was Puerto Rican, they would call me a gringa. Mm. They, they would call me white girl because yeah, mm. I'm not from the island. I mean, we're all American, right? They're as, I'm a, they're as American as I am, but there's still a difference. Fish out of agua, fish out of water. Mm-hmm. So that right away that means someone that's not fitting in or in a situation that not unusual. What's the word for it? It's like some place that they don't belong. And um, my grandmother and great grandmother are both brown skinned. Um, my great grandmother darker than my grandmother. My mom whose father is part African-American, is is lighter skinned than me, but I don't resemble her facially. I'm the only redhead on both sides of my family. Uh, my family, my, you know, my immediate family, my mom and dad and my brother and me, moved to a neighborhood in the Northeast Bronx when I was about seven because, you know, they wanted us to grow up in a better neighborhood, better schools, of course, Right. And the neighborhood was mostly Italian, Italian-American, um, you know, Catholic neighborhood. There were Italians, there were Irish, there were Germans, there were Poles, there were Greeks. There was a Catholic school on every freaking corner. I remember that. I was like, wow. But so much good stuff to eat, too. Oh, my God. Butchers and bakeries and delis and ice cream parlors and whatever. But the funny thing was, like, most of these Italians were Southern Italian, you know. So they were like Bares, Calabres, uh, Sicilian. And some of them were, like, as dark as some of my relatives, but once they learned what, if, if I told them I was Puerto Rican because I was a kid, like, what are you? Because kids would say, what are you? You know, like, well, uh, my family's from Calabria or my family's from Sicily or my family's, um, we're Irish. So what are you? I'm Puerto Rican. And like, they were, they were kids that were like three shades darker than me, but then I was this big. And, you know, you're a kid, you can't process that. It's just like, what, but she's the same color as my Titi Ophelia. I mean, I, I don't get it. And then, you know, you make the connection that this is your family and you don't really look like them. And these are your friends or the people in your neighborhood you have to deal with. And you're the odd one out there, too. So, you know, it's like your brain explodes because you don't have, as a child, the, the words to convey this. You don't have the emotional experience behind you to cope with it. Mm-hmm. You just react. So yeah, that was a, that that was like some heavy that was like some heavy stuff. But that's when I like I said I, I realized that I was I was the odd one out. So I always felt like the outlier. It's 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 yeah it's it's it was a hard way to grow up. And it, it was very difficult. Like, I literally, and you know, who knows how much of this is self-imposed, too. Michelle continues with discussions on growing up feeling like the outlier, on finding belonging, and on creating a community with others like herself. Making art, creating art was my way out of everything. When I was a small child, 
all I did was draw. That was my way out of frustration, out of anxiety, out of disappointment, out of betrayal. Any time that I had something that I needed to deal with, I would just draw my way out of it. Because don't forget, as we were saying before, when you're a child, you do not have the mental or emotional experience or capacity to process things that are out of your realm of of experience. So for me, it was drawing. Um, I wanted to go to the School of Visual Arts. I ended up getting there like through sheer force of will. Basically, I got in at the age where most people are choosing their final major. And I decided to become a performer at the age of 35, which is the age most sane people give it up. Ha ha. Mm. And finding the weirdos, the artist tribe. Yeah, that's that's who I, you know, that's where I belong. It's funny because sometimes I consider myself a redhead and a New Yorker and an artist before anything else. Like those are that that's my tribes. Cuz yeah, come on. Red that's a special. Um I created uh the radio show version of Fish Out of Bagua which seemed to me to be a natural offshoot of the book because artists are usually because artists are usually the outliers of their family. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people that I interviewed had to fight their family tooth and nail to be able to become who they were. Some people are still estranged to this day. Others only found reconciliation after a measure of success had been. And some just live under a watchful peace. And it was very interesting to see like how people coming into their artistic be into people like um like one like one of the questions that I would ask a lot of the people I would interview is so when did you when did you discover that you were one of the weirdos mm. and then I would ask if anybody else in the family had pursued anything artistic and mostly no almost every many I would say maybe 80% of the people that I interviewed they're the only artist in their family Mm-hmm. And for people that are especially a first uh, first generation immigration, that was a big bone of contention within the family because the family was like, oh, this is fine. Now go make money. You know, mm-hmm. you can play with this, but now go make money. Art is not something that you can make a career with. And there have been people that have proven their family wrong. And there have been people that they just don't talk about that with their parents because they don't want to have like war. You know, you mm-hmm. want to have peace. So... My aim with the radio show, which aired on Radio Free Brooklyn up until the middle of May and now will continue to exist as a podcast, but my aim was to showcase the under the radar about to break out artists that are always creating, like people for whom being an artist is is not a hobby it's their life if if they, if they can't do what they're going to do then they how are they going to exist mm. and i wanted to showcase the stories of people whose stories have historically been dismissed devalued and discarded women people of color acronym and differing abilities mm-hmm. and there's just so much richness there and i've been blessed to have had conversations with so so many people and to hear their journeys and it just like I said before it just reminds us when we hear these stories 
how we're the same more than we're different. And stories are important. Stories are life. That was Brooklyn-based storyteller Michelle Carlo. Michelle is a native New Yorker, a New Yorican, and has performed at the Moth's Grand Slam and Main Stage in New York City, on NPR with Latino USA, and on PBS with Stories from the Stage. Her podcast, Fish Out of Agua, is an offshoot of her debut memoir, Fish Out of Agua, My Life on Neither Side of the Subway Tracks. Here's Nestor and I on Michelle's story. I love her story because it touches on the identity of Latinos. Um, not only on the fact that she herself, she sees herself like outside of her, of her family, like she doesn't look like the people from her family, but also because there's a lot of Latinos that when you look at them, like it even happened to me, I had met Latinos that, I don't even think, I don't even know the Latinos until, until we start a conversation. I'm like, oh, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's like we usually say that Latinos come in many shapes and colors. I think for Michelle, right, she realized when she was at the Puerto Rican parade, oh, I'm the one who's different, the outsider. Yes, which is so, uh, such an uh difficult thing for her because she's different within her family and it must be so difficult to be the one who's different within the family and then you're different within a whole community uh, as, as, as a Latino person in the United States. It, it must have been such a difficult experience. I want to talk about language. So Michelle describes in her story her limited Spanish growing up to the extent that she and her abuela then had a language barrier between them, that both her and her abuela didn't understand each other. That's like mine and your experience too, right, Nestor, in our respective families. Not only that, but also uh, when, when you look at the different generations in the United States, like my kids, they don't speak Spanish fluently the way that I speak Spanish. Uh, they speak Spanish, uh, it's like a broken Spanish. And it's not only on my case, there's many cases where immigrants come here and they have the kids and the kids don't speak the original language of the parents. Maybe they speak a little bit or maybe they speak none at all. Um, and within the, the Puerto Rican community, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans that don't speak any English and there's a lot of Puerto Ricans that don't speak any Spanish. So they, they have a, a, a unique experience. I think they have the experience within the community that we have within our generations. So how do you bridge that language barrier, Nestor? So for example, in my family, my mom speaks a very limited amount of English. My siblings and I, we speak just, I would say, okay Cantonese. Um, I would say our Chinese, uh, our Cantonese Chinese is stronger than my mom's English skills. And... When we have a conversation, my dad almost always has to be in the room, sort of like a translator for myself and my siblings when we want to convey something to our mom. So I almost never have a conversation about, for example, dating. Not just because of the language barrier, but also because, you know, my dad is in the room. 
So in a way, the language barrier sets a limit to the relationship my mother and I can have. Yeah, but on, on my case, I think it's more like a coach wishing thing because my mother, she speaks English, but it, uh, she doesn't speak English as fluently as she does Spanish. So we have conversations mainly in Spanish when I speak to my to my mother. But then when I speak to my kids, we usually speak in English because they are more fluent in English than they are in Spanish. So it's like a coach which that I don't even think about it. I just like start because I know this person I got to speak, you know, it's like my mind knows that I got to switch from one language to another. Um, yeah. And lately I found myself having conversations in English with my mother because she's her English is getting better. So I, I don't need a translator when I speak to my father, to, to my to my mom. Um that, that must be so hard for you to have to have like translate and, and not being able to have those deep conversations that you want to have with your mom. Even people from from the island, from Puerto Rico, which is still part of the United States, and some people think that Puerto Ricans are immigrants. Puerto Ricans are not immigrants. Puerto Ricans are uh, United States citizens. But they still have to go through, through learning the language, uh, learning the culture a little, a little bit because it's a different culture than the, than the island. So... It's a, it's a unique situation there. Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories. More information on 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories can be found on our website, NestorGomezStoryteller.com and the show's Facebook page. Please contact us if you have a story you want to share or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you. Immigration Stories podcast is created, produced, edited by Nestor Gomez and Angel Link. Thank you for listening. Please remember to like and share. <laughs>